everybody, Mike here. Welcome to the Vox Podcast. I am privileged to be joined from the great state of Texas from my new friend, Austin Fisher. Austin, hello. How are you? I'm doing very well, man. Thanks so much for having me on the podcast. Absolutely. Now, how did we how did we get connected? Was it through the Young, Restless, and No Longer Reform book? Is that what happened? Yeah, I think um, I was cheering we you connected on. on Twitter. Yeah, through that first book. And so I've been a, a fan from a distance for a while. And so I'm grateful to uh, oh, finally no. get some screen to screen. <laughs> and you see now why I don't video podcast. Now Stop. you can see. Come on. Stop. Okay, Austin. Well, thank you. I have very much enjoyed your work. And and this book, uh, I want to talk about um, a new book you have out uh, called Faith in the Shadows, Finding Christ in the Midst of Doubt, which uh, for our audience is a very timely, relevant, uh, big topic as many of us are undergoing something that has been called re or deconstruction, which is, hey, you know, the Christianity we were handed either isn't right or doesn't fit uh, the world that we're seeing around us. And so anyway, I thought, I thought your book was fantastic. What, when you initially set out to write it, what did you hope would happen? Like, what was the, what was the, the dream behind the book of what would it, it would accomplish in people? Yeah. So similar to the first book, um, it's really a narration of a journey that I went on. Um, I think most good theology, and I'm borrowing this phrase from someone, but most good <laughs> theology is essentially biography, which just means oh, we good. we make sense of God as we try to make sense of our own lives and what we see God doing and up to. And so I don't really know uh, a way to write that's not kind of personal in a right. certain sense. Yep. Um, I've always found the abstract theology not particularly helpful. It has its place, but that's just not what I'm wired to do. I'm a pastor. You know, you cut me up and I'm a pastor at my core. And so... I tell stories. And so I'd gone through this journey with doubt and skepticism um, as a pastor, as a pastor and and had come to the place where I was pretty close to walking away from it all. Um, I didn't, obviously here I am, (laughs) but I remember getting to the end of it and just going, man, if I, as a pastor and, you know, a professional (laughs) religious person who's been given all sorts (laughs) of training and tools to be able to process faith and difficult questions really felt like I was kind of drowning as I was going through this extreme process of deconstruction and doubt, then I figured there were a lot of people out there who don't have those resources who could probably use um, a fellow kind of pilgrim and voice on that journey yeah. to be essentially taught how to doubt faithfully. And so that's what mm. the book was meant to be is, um, you know, it's not a definitive word on the topic, but one example of what it looked like for one person to doubt and yet to still do so faithfully. And so that was the hope for the book. Right. Oh, that's really good. And when we when we talk about doubt, of course, we always talk about um, there there are passages in the scriptures that seem to condemn, you know, James uh, yeah. is the is the big one that condemned doubting. Um, but you, I, I, I love you. You wrote something, um, you said doubt makes people abandon faith, but people don't abandon faith because they have doubts. Mm-hmm. People abandon faith because they think they're not allowed to have doubts. Um, and, and was that, was that something that was a catalyst for you in the journey? Absolutely. Like when I reflect upon my own journey and then as a pastor, you know, I just deal with a lot of people who are dealing with doubts. And I I really have found that 
the kind of boogeyman stories you hear about, you know, somebody went asking too many questions or exposing themselves to too many taboo experiences or they read Harry Potter or (laughs) Nietzsche or whatever it is. Those people are rarely the ones that I see walk away from their faith. Ooh, that's Um, good. People I tend to see walk away from their faith. They're not people who have questions. It's people who had questions and were afraid to be honest about them until it was already too late. Oh. And so that's what the book is, is meant to help people do, to see that when you got doubts, um, you can't just shove them down in the basement of your heart and hope that they'll magically disappear from inattention because we know when we're being honest with ourselves. And if you know that you're not being honest about your doubts and you're trying to ignore them, then they just grow stronger and they eventually get to a place where they'll swallow up your faith. And so when it comes to doubt, like... Uh, we just did a series on doubt at my church, and and what I compared doubt to is something like, let's say, sadness and sickness. Now, mm. sadness and sickness aren't good things, but they're just kind of inevitable things in a fallen world. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, of course, God doesn't want us to doubt. God wants us to trust, but I don't think God blames us for our doubt any more than God would blame us for being sad or sick. You know, and so what does God do? God enters into our sad, sick, doubting condition. Uh, in order to eventually understand it and redeem it. And so I think the question about whether or not doubts are right or wrong is kind of superfluous. Like we can't control whether or not we'll doubt right. any more than we can control whether we'll be sad or sick. It will just happen in a fallen world. And so the only question is how we will doubt once the doubt sets in. Right. So one option um, is to just pretend the doubts aren't there. Um, and, and that's typically the, the worst thing you can do for them. Mm-hmm. Um, is just pretend. What are what are other ways that um, you've seen doubts handled that that are very poor? Yeah. Um, in in, ter- in Christian circles, and so one one is just to ignore them, pretend they're not there. Mm-hmm. I've seen I've seen people do the thirty second Bible answer, man. Well, yeah. Let me give you the three steps to you know. The problem that of would evil. be the other extreme. You know, is um, what I would call cheap pseudo apologetics. You know, right. and so then that's part of why I wanted to write a book. And it's kind of an apologetic, obviously, in some ways it is. Um, but a lot of the the books on doubt that I came across seem like they were written by people who don't really know what it's like to doubt. <laughs> you know, <laughs> that's what it felt like to me. And so they just offer these kind of cheap surface level answers that would convince someone who had either A, never really doubted before, or B, um, wasn't willing to give full range to how deep our doubts can run. And so yeah, I mean, you know the answers. The Bible says it. I believe it. That settles it. You know, right. what, what more could need to be said? Well, for a lot of us, a lot more needs to be said. And so I think that's the other extreme is cheap, easy answers that act as if, um, you know, if we will just read what the Bible says with an open mind and charitable heart, then all of our doubts magically disappear, even though that's quite clearly not the case. <laughs> so you, so one of the things you say is, is we don't want to be ashamed of our doubts. And so, you know, there, there's this great passage in Jude be merciful to those who doubt and yeah. quote, you know, the great commission where some are doubting, mm-hmm. but, but then, but then there does seem to be an overcorrection sometimes where we're proud of yeah. our doubting. Our doubting is almost a badge of honor. You know, it's like, I'm not one of those naive people that actually believe this. Uh, and you say, okay, so we want to doubt faithfully. So, mm-hmm. so talk a bit about that. What does that mean? Yeah, that the whole book is really meant to be an example of what it looks like to doubt faithfully. And so a couple of the, you know, I guess main principles that get embodied with the book, the first one would be that 
to doubt faithfully means that a we're we're honest about our doubts, you right. know. And so chapter three is about the book of Job, and Job is kind of a paradigm for what faithful doubting looks like, you know. And so right. Job, a lot of times people read Job one through two, and they stop in chapter two, and then they right. fast forward to chapter forty two, and it's well. Yeah, Job lost everything, but he praised God anyways. He got over it, and then everything was restored double. And they missed the 36 <laughs> chapters in between where Job just obliterates yeah. God, right? Like verbally assaults God for like 36 chapters, says all sorts of terrible things. And yet at the end of it, God says, Job, you, you yeah. spoke rightly of me. Right. Your, your friends, your friends who said, hey, here are the answers. Get over it. You know, praise God. Don't doubt. Get over it. They've spoken wrongly of me. And my wrath is kindled against them. And in fact, I'm going to have you, Job, go offer a sacrifice for them so they don't get smoked like they deserve. <laughs> so I think Job is a really helpful example of Job doesn't have anything nice to say about God. Mm-hmm. He still speaks to God. He mm-hmm. takes God too seriously not to speak to God, even when he doesn't have anything nice to say. And so I think that's an enormous part of it is to be honest, to keep the conversation going, to not, and I see this a lot as a pastor, when the doubt sets in, People feel like they have to leave the church right. in order right. to process doubts faithfully. And that's what kills me as a pastor. Like I, totally. when people most need the church, right? They feel like they have to leave the church because they feel like they can't be honest with their doubts. And so yeah. that's really more for pastors. Our churches have to be safe places where people feel like they can honestly ask their questions and process them and not have to pretend like they have it all together. So totally. that's probably the biggest piece of it. Yeah. Um, And then the second piece, and this is really what y'all's podcast is designed to do in a lot of ways, is to not get stuck in the terminal deconstruction Mm -hmm. because it can happen. And I I almost was there, man. I mean, I was really close to getting caught (laughs) in kind of perpetual limbo and going, you know what? Certainty is not in the cards for me. I'm not going to be certain. And yet Jesus has still asked me to act courageously and faithfully, even though I can't be certain. Right. So you got to get to this point where you have to make this gut level decision about whether or not you're in or out on this thing. Right. Yeah. No. And and I wish there were a different and better way. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I Me wish too. there were seven easy steps. You know. Yeah. Why? Why? The job. The the chapter on job I thought was really um, was very very good because I don't think we we understand that book well as because I. And again, I hate interviews where the author, where the interviewer just quotes the book back to the interviewee, but I will continue to do so. Um, uh, you know, the idea that, that, that how do you reconcile that Job is innocent and that God is good mm-hmm. and that this terrible evil is happening? And, that, and that's, that's the question, right? The doubting yep. faithfully is holding all of that intention. Yeah. Not not trying to escape tension by either superficially trying to solve it or pretending the tension isn't there, but sitting there going, okay, here's what I know. God is good. I am innocent and this evil is happening. And yep. I have no idea how those things fit together. So yep. so those so that to me is is uh, a beautiful picture of it sounds like part of the journey for you was sitting there going, okay, these doubts are real. And yet I'm leading a church and yet I'm compelled by this, this person, Jesus, and all of those things are true. And, you know, how do we work that out? Yep. Um, when, when we get to the idea of certainty, so Pete ends, of course, the sin of certainty, yeah. um, which uh, I, I read here the last couple of months, what, and certainty is certainly, is certainly kind of a, a post-Christian boogeyman. You know, we don't, 
we're really suspicious of anything that's that claims absolute certainty. So yep. if if God didn't intend for us to have certainty, what did he intend for us to have? And what what's so wrong with certainty that we ought to be suspicious of it? Yeah. I mean, certainty would be great <laughs> if we could have it. Right. Um, so it's really not that, you know, certainty in of itself would be a great thing. It just does not appear as though God has seen fit to grant us the certainty we so much desire. Um, when, when I talk about faith and, and talk about it with um, kind of my church, I say faith isn't certainty, but it's the willingness to act faithfully despite our uncertainty. Okay. Right. So instead of thinking of faith as um, a binary choice between certainty and unbelief, you know, right. so we're either certain about every single article of Christian faith or we don't believe any of it, we begin to see faith as something that exists on a continuum. Hmm. Right. And so we, we want to be confident, um, but usually claims for certainty, um, they just tend to be overstatements. Like, what, what would it mean for a painfully finite human being to be certain? You know, it's, and so once you, you push for well, what do you mean by that, the explanations usually break down really fast, especially if you're talking to someone who doesn't share your faith. Right, <laughs> you know, right. If you've ever done that, you see how quickly some of your presuppositions break down, and you realize that, that certainty is just not in the cards for us. And it's not because we're sinful, it's because we're human. Hmm. And I think that's a very important distinction to make, that a lot of our struggles aren't sinful, they're just human, right? Right. And so if struggling with our faith, let's say, is sinful, then Jesus was a sinner because Jesus struggled with his faith. We see it in the Garden of Gethsemane. We see it on the cross. And yet not all of our struggles are sinful. Some of them are just human. It's a part of being an impossibly small creature in an impossibly big universe forced mm-hmm. to live with massive mysteries that aren't of your choosing. You right. know? And so I think really that's more the thing is surrendering to what it means to be a human. And to be a human is, by definition, to not be certain. Okay. Then... Um... Totally with you. Then, what is God after instead? Allegiance has become a very helpful word for me. Yeah, um, I think Matthew Bates wrote a book called "Salvation Based by Allegiance." Allegiance Alone. Yeah. Yep. Oh, and, and man, it was such a, a clarifying concept for me because totally um, agree. I, I had when I was going through this journey with doubt. I started to struggle with seeing the virtue of faith. Now that may sound mm. kind of abstract, but like, what, what is it that is so virtuous about faith right. that God would put so much capital in it? You know, like love, I can understand. Love is a clear virtue. Right. Um, but, but faith, you know, especially if you think of faith as like the ability to convince yourself something is true, <laughs> that, that doesn't really feel like a virtue. You know, it feels like totally. a psychological gimmick. Yeah. And so, when you start to think of faith instead of allegiance, you know, a mm-hmm. deep commitment to someone, then faith as a virtue begins to make more sense. And so that's been helpful for me to think of faith, not as certainty, but instead of an allegiance that we give to Jesus, a willingness to act faithfully right. despite our uncertainty. And so I think that ultimately is what God is after. And then I have a chapter on this in the book, but Paul, you know, very clearly says, hey, faith, hope, love, these yep. are the three greatest things, abide yep. in these, but the greatest of these is love, right? Which is the most obvious and intuitive thing ever, but I, I do think in some circles, <laughs> Protestant circles, for various reasons, love got leapfrogged by faith as kind of the cardinal Christian virtue. What sure. God wants most from us is faith. But Scripture is very clear that faith is really just a means to love. Faith is not an end in itself. Faith will be done away with one day, is what Paul says. 
Um, and so what God wants ultimately from us is for us to love him and our neighbor as ourselves. Right. And so faith is helpful only insofar as it helps us do that. Right. Faith right. isn't an end in itself. Yeah. And, and that then means that faith and doubt have not only can coexist, but are, are almost necessary uh, conditions for the other. Mm-hmm. Do you know what I mean? Oh, absolutely. I mean, again, faith by definition includes uncertainty. Right. It just it just does. You don't have to have faith in something that you're certain of. Right. And that's why Paul <laughs> says faith's going to be done away with one day because we'll right. see face to face and we'll know as we are known. And so, yeah, um, when people talk about being certain about faith, it's it's a contradiction in terms. Hmm. You know, it's cool. Mm-hmm. When you um, when you talk about uh, you you go through so it's it's kind of an interesting you have an interesting take on it because you don't spend the whole book talking about doubt you you but you kind of go through a bunch of topics that are huge in the big doubts and questions so the the few I wrote down evolution uh, young earth creationism the problem of evil money's the surprising one for me. Yeah. Hell, silence, and fundamentalism were, mm-hmm. were some of the topics. Um, yeah. The money one, now this, now I'm going to quote you here because this I want you to explain. Far more people lose faith because of stuff than because of science. So let's let's go yeah. into that one because I think for, for me, I the faith and doubt conversation is an intellectual conversation, and that's the problem, right? I've reduced believing mm-hmm. to just mentally affirming certain truth propositions, yeah. and I've reduced doubting to not sure if I believe and assent to these mental, you know, truth propositions. Mm-hmm. But but you're saying it's much bigger than that. Yeah. So, Mister Austin, lay it on us, man. Yeah, that you know. Um, some of that is is channeling the work of um, he's a reformed philosopher, but I don't hold that against him. Um, James <laughs> K. A. Smith, he's a great philosopher. Totally. I love Smith's work. Um, yeah. But anyways, he has written a lot about um, the way human decision making and desires actually work. And so Smith's thesis, in a nutshell, which you probably know, but maybe your viewers don't, is that we don't think our way through the world, and that we're not near the thinkers we like to think we are. Um, rather, we we desire our way through the world. So we don't go through the world going, hey, you know, what should I think is right here? And then if this is the right thing to think, then I'll do that. It's more like, what yeah. do I want? That's the first thing. What do I want? <laughs> and then we will find a way to bend our logic to get whatever we want. That's the way it works, right? No. So we don't go through the world thinking. No. We go through the world wanting, which I know sounds preposterous, but no way. Um, so you couple that with this conversation about faith and doubt. And I, I remember it just became kind of clear to me over time that um, talking with people that a lot of people think their doubts are very cerebral and intellectual, right. but in reality, they're more of a gut level phenomenon of desire, huh. you know? And like, give an example. Not so much like do it. So there's a guy, I, I tell the story about this in my book. There was a guy um, in my church who kind of came and he was a nice guy. Um, not a particularly intellectual person though, you know, and doesn't have any sort of like existential doubts about, you know, uh, <laughs> the relativity of morality or polytheism or any of that, you know, it's just not his thing. And he eventually, his company had this huge windfall, got bought out. He made all this money. He ended up, you know, walking away from his family, really sad deal, left the church. And I tried to talk to him about it 
Yeah. And, and all of a sudden, you know, he's he's got all these doubts about faith that he clearly hadn't really researched at all. And what became clear to me was not that he didn't believe in God intellectually anymore. It's that God had become inconvenient for him. Right. Um, he had a lot of stuff now, and he wanted to do whatever the hell he wanted. Right. And God becomes very inconvenient when you have a lot of stuff and you want to do whatever the hell you want, because God has a lot of stuff to say about what we do with our stuff, <laughs> <laughs> namely, give it away. Right. So um, that, for me, was a really interesting example of it was not that this person had intellectually come to the conclusion that the idea of God was difficult. It was that on a gut level, this God had become a problem for what this person wanted. Right, right. And so then the intellectual things were actually just a post hoc rationalization for the gut level feeling that I don't want God telling me what to do anymore. And of course, we see that in Scripture in First Timothy. It's a very well known verse. I think First Timothy, maybe Second, which is, "For the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil, and because of it, many people have wandered away from the faith." Right. And I just remember reading that verse, going, "How has nobody ever tapped into this idea before that people walked away from the faith?" Not because they had existential questions about the problem of evil or other religions, but because they loved money. That's what I'm talking That's about. That's why they walked away from faith. I actually came to faith because I love money, and I, I thought being a televangelist would be the way to go. Yeah, that's where it was at. <laughs> I don't know. If you can live with yourself, I hear it's a great way to have Jadson. That's that's yeah. We're we're trying to we're trying to uh, to raise money for a scooter these days. So it's very yeah. well, we're going to work that's, our way up. It's a very exciting time. I'll spend five dollars to your scooter fund. <sighs> that's what I'm talking about. Down. Um, but that's an interesting that's an interesting way to approach the conversation. I I, I had a friend of mine in college who he was a diehard atheist. He was the kind of guy that would walk around on Easter Sunday. Uh, to people walking to church and just tell them they were wrong. <laughs> I mean, and he's and he was well, a, part. he was a great guy. I mean, we we had so much fun together. Yeah, and we would get, of course, into these huge you know college late night conversations. And I finally asked him, like, dude, if if I could answer every argument that you have, every objection you have, I said, would you believe? And he's like, well, yeah. no, I don't want to give up sleeping with my girlfriend. So yep. why would I do that? Yep. And and again, I'm not, uh, nor are you saying, hey, doubts can be reduced to these sorts of things. But it is funny how, and, and I see this in my own life, of course, um, I can really justify anything theologically that my heart, you know, chooses to to go towards. Oh yeah. And so that doubt becomes this much bigger category mm-hmm. than just intellectual struggles, but it oh. could be intellectual struggles attached to wantings. Absolutely. And there, you know, it's not just theologians telling us this. And um, we've got tons of research coming in from social psychologists and psychologists and telling us that this is the way humans make decisions. Um, mm-hmm. One of the best books written recently on it was by Jonathan Haidt, The Righteous Mind. Yep. And he's, absolutely. Uh, I think he identifies as agnostic, maybe atheist, I mean, one or the other, certainly not a religious person. Correct. And he just lays out this really comprehensive case for like, this is the way humans work. What we call rationality is just post hoc. <laughs> justification for decisions we instantly made geared toward what we wanted, right? So again, this is not philosophers and theologians. This is uh, social psychologists and you know neuroscientists saying this is the way humans make decisions. And so kind of the flip side of that would be, I, I really do think that um, for most people, what moves them toward belief is wanting to believe, hmm. right? So, so when, when I'm trying to communicate with people, I'm not just trying to convince them that Christianity is true. I am trying to do that, but not just that. I'm also trying to help them see that Christianity is beautiful. Mm-hmm. Okay. 
Yeah, because that we want it they, to be true. If they want to believe, then they'll find a way to believe. And, and again, I don't mean to make that sound like it's like a sleight of hand sort of thing. Right. Um, I just mean that I really do think Jesus is beautiful. And so because of that, and I think Christianity clearly throughout history has probably been the most beautiful thing to ever happen to humanity. Now, most of <laughs> us, have never, the Western world has never known anything different. So we take right. for granted what Christianity has done for the world. Um, but if we can help the world understand that, that Jesus is beautiful— then that would do a lot of the persuasive work that we think our arguments will. Right, right. Because you you uh, you do have the microphone in front of many who would say Christianity's done so much harm. Oh yeah, in the world, and we would agree, no question Absolutely. about it. But, but yeah, go. You go. No, it's no, you. you got it. It was it was right there, dude. Uh, you do it. <laughs> it, it. It is. Well, this is what I I did a debate with um. Uh, an atheist guy on a British talk show, and he was great. We had a great talk. Oh, was this Briarly? Was this Briarly's yeah, show? Yeah, Briarly's show. Unbelievable. He, nice. he does a great show. Um, <clears throat> but this guy named Ed was talking about Christianity's kind of scandalous moral history. And granted, I, I totally agree, but um, the failures of Christianity are only scandalous to the modern mind because Christianity gave the modern mind its moral vision, right? And so Things like war and, you know, horrendous atrocities and abuse, that was just Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday in the ancient world. Right. There was nothing scandalous about it. It didn't become scandalous until Jesus came along with this, you know, vision of every single human, prince and pauper, you know, priest and crook having this infinite value that is violated at great peril to the transgressor and puts them under the judgment of God. Whoa. Right? That was not the way the ancient world saw humans. And so um, when modern kind of antagonistic atheist folks want to get on Christianity, it's absolutely valid. But those are not even arguments that would have occurred to them had it not been for Christianity. Got it. Mm-hmm. That's interesting. I think it's very, very interesting. Did, do you, did you throw that on Ed? In, uh, in I did. I dropped it on Ed. And what did Ed do? Did he just repent and you'll dust and ashes? The, you'll have to listen to the interview. I <laughs> He, he kind of granted the point, you know, um, and that's where, I mean, honestly, um, I think a lot of the more antagonistic atheists, they, they don't, it's like trying to talk to a fish about water, you know, like the Western mind finds it difficult to comprehend how much it has benefited from the Christian moral vision, right? because it's all it's ever known. Um, and so when you go back to, yeah, sure, there was, you know, some okay, Roman laws and Egyptian laws, but they were nothing close to the moral vision that was given to us um, by Christ. Mm. Now, let me let me switch gears, my man. Um, our, our friends over at the Gospel Coalition, uh, and, and, and this was the best. So I had a guy um, email me. We, the best part about doing a podcast is all the interaction you get with people. Like it's, it's just phenomenal. Mm-hmm. And a guy said, Hey, can I, I want you to find something good to say about John Piper and those guys. Yeah. So we go to the website, find an article, boom, there it is. But while I'm there, <laughs> we found an article on progressive Christianity. Now the cards on the table, I, I don't, I don't see myself as either conservative or progressive, right? I mean, excuse me, the goal that we would both articulate is to be faithful. And if faithful means that I look progressive politically in these ways or conservative politically in other ways, so be it. Yeah. Right? I don't, I I want the Bible to lead the conversation. Yeah, exactly. But one of the things they tweeted out and that you responded to 
um, was uh, three ideas that may lead some progressive Christians into full-blown atheism. Premise of the story, of course, are all of these deconversion stories that we hear mm-hmm. about how people, and, and, and most deconversion stories typically go from, I was conservative evangelical to that was a straight jacket and I hate it to then, well, I'm not even sure what I believe anymore. And so they're talking about the Gungers and, and, uh, Rob Bell and, you know, people that, that we all know. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and they said, uh, uh, as you know, cause you tweeted in response to it, uh, three ideas that may lead some progressive Christians in the full-blown atheism. First, they may adopt a belief that the Bible is unreliable. Second, they may have an unresolved answer to the problem of evil. Third, they may affirm a culture adapting morality. Now, you responded to this, and I, I thought in a very way, totally congruent with what you're arguing in the book. That's why I bring this up now. Mm-hmm. But what was your take on that? Um, if you want to go through each one by itself or just have an overall take, I'd love to hear it. Yeah, first off, just the you know, Gospel Coalition, I have an interesting relationship with them. Some of the people who do work for them are, are really good. They have some really good people um, who are involved with them. Some of it, though, has just gotten so shrill and echo chambery that it's just it's just tough sometimes. So let's say the Gospel Coalition writing an article about why progressive Christians become atheists. It's just, you know, it's lecturing in an echo chamber, man. There aren't any progressive Christians reading Gospel Coalition stuff at this point. They've lost the ability to speak to those people. And so, for my two cents, I thought it would probably probably more helpful for the Gospel Coalition to write an article about why conservative Christians move towards full-blown atheism, because that's the people they could actually reach and influence. Right. And so, when I look at it, it's kind of taking each one point by point, um, I see a lot of conservative, um, and, and even more the conservative fundamentalist is probably the fairer word to use than conservative, because those two things don't have to be the same. Fundamentalist Christians um, are brought up with this very rigid definition of inerrancy. Right. Um, and then, you know, whatever, they read a book about it, or they have a, you know, a smart agnostic interlocutor that they get in an argument with, and they realize that inerrancy crumbles, at least any sort of rigid definition crumbles pretty fast. And so if they've been taught that scripture has to hold to this really rigid definition of inerrancy and it doesn't, then they think they have to walk away from the Bible, right? So they've been given this house of cards approach. And so when the house of cards falls down, they leave. You see that all the time with fundamentalist Christians. Um, The second one was honestly the most amusing that they said they may have unresolved answers to the problem of evil because- I think we all do. Classical Christian orthodoxy has said the only acceptable answer to the problem of evil is not to have an answer to the problem of evil. Like, I mean, <laughs> literally, I was reading um, Fleming Rutledge, who she's fantastic the other day, and Fleming has very reformed sensibilities in a lot of ways. Um, she has this great chapter in her book, The Crucifixion. What's it called? Yeah, The Crucifixion, um, where she says, these are the unacceptable things to say about evil. And basically, the first bullet point is it is unacceptable to have an answer to the problem of evil. And so I read this Gospel Coalition article going, what in the world? Like, this is literally orthodoxy one-on-one. We're not supposed to have an answer to the problem of evil. Right. You know, and so, you know, the flip side of that would be uh, the Calvinist answer to the problem of evil, I think, has to be. Now, I can't make people be consistent Calvinists. That's their choice. But if they're going to be consistent— then I think God has intended and desired evil, 
and needs evil to display his full glory. Right. right. You get down the road, that's clearly where Edwards goes. Um, and Edwards bites the bullet more than Musk because he was consistent. Yeah. Calvin goes in that direction too. Piper. Um, Piper, you know, will say God authored, ordained evil. Um, and so for his glory. Yeah, for his glory and our good, our meaning the elect. Yeah. Um, not yeah. everybody else. But um, so giving that answer to the problem of evil that God needs evil. Yeah. A, you know, I, I, I do think consistent Calvinism necessitates that. And then B, that is not compatible with classic Christian orthodoxy. And so getting that answer to the problem of evil <laughs> causes a lot of people to walk away from their faith, not not having an answer to the problem of evil. Oh, <laughs> oh man. Okay, so there are about 80 landmines, excuse me, in what you just said. It's fantastic. Yeah. Um, well, no, I mean, it's just one of those things. It's like, yeah, I mean, it's our people reacting to the 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 real Christian teaching about the problem of evil, or are they reacting to the caricature as yep. presented as, nope, God was responsible for that, and, you know, he's mm-hmm. behind every murder and rape and mm-hmm. whatever. For some mm-hmm. ethereal glory thing, but yep. So I, I am I am completely with you, but I love that last point, and and that's really I think what the deconstruction project, if it's done well, is getting at. That there have been these barnacles or the subculture that's grown and attached itself to the preaching of Jesus, so that it's almost indistinguishable mm-hmm. between the the preaching of Jesus and the subculture and its implications. And what you're doing and what we're trying to do is to say, no, 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 no. There's actually a big difference here between um, uh, following this Jesus and then accepting the whole of the Christian subculture. Now, let's talk about inerrancy for a second. Yep. So, so one very brief question is, okay, so, so what do you mean by inerrant and how is it not? Great question. Um, so at my church, our doctrine statement on Scripture says we believe Scripture is— uh, you know, authoritative, inspired, infallible in what it teaches. So that gives us enough wiggle room to be flexible. Um, So I'm our lead pastor, and then we have one other lead pastor. Our other lead pastor is actually a Calvinist. What? So, yeah, so I practice what I preach here. Hey, that's Um, awesome. What's great about it is it does force you to um, really understand the other side. That's great. You know, because I have to work with this person and— articulate his views fairly and charitably on oh, things. Oh, that's all. Are you the um, primary so I, teacher? We both are. So we split it. Oh, 50, wow. 50. Wow. Yep. yep. And wow. so he, for example, would, would hold to inerrancy. Um, so when we're kind of walking through how we're going to do our doctrine, we wanted to do something that was generous enough so that people who believe in inerrancy yeah. And then people who don't necessarily think inerrancy is the right word can worship together and fall under the same doctrinal right. statement. And so that's when we came up with what we did. So when it comes to inerrancy, I don't have a problem with people. What's inerrancy? It. Define inerrancy. For, yeah, and so for that, that's the problem is there, last time I looked, um, one of my past uh, professors in uh, grad school, Roger Olson, he had written a great article <laughs> on inerrancy. And there are at least like 17 different definitions. Huh. So – I mean, I, I couldn't. I could give you a lot of different definitions for what inerrancy means, and that's kind of the point. Is once inerrancy has to get properly qualified, um, it gets to the point where it's almost death by qualification, <clears throat> because on on the you know kind of base level, we don't have any inerrant manuscripts, right? We got all these different manuscripts, 
there's remarkable kind of harmony in them, but none of them match up perfectly. Right. And so we're having to kind of hypothesize these original manuscripts that you hear so much about that are allegedly inerrant, yeah. but we don't have them. Right. And if inerrancy is so important, it seems like God would have given us those, right. but instead God didn't see fit to give us these hypothetical original manuscripts that were allegedly inerrant. And so I, my whole point has, has kind of been with inerrancy that I think it fails to function as a doctrine once you really bear down and see that we don't have any inerrant Bibles, we don't have the original manuscripts, they're not accessible to us. And so inerrancy essentially becomes a code word for I take the Bible more seriously than you do. Mm. And I think that's what you're kind of getting at is it just it can't function. And I don't really have a lot of patience for doctrines that don't function except to cause unnecessary division in the church. And I or, think that's or I take the Bible literally. Yeah, well, and that's kind of so we did a um a series uh, where I did a sermon on science, and we talked a little bit about, uh, about evolution and reading Genesis 1 through 2. And one of the things that our people found helpful is to understand the strengths and weaknesses of both, you know, a little bit of a caricature here, but conservative and progressive Bible reading. So let's say a strength of conservative Bible reading is that there is an affirmation of the literal history behind the Bible story. Yeah. Okay, so yep. Christianity doesn't claim to be an inspiring collection of fairy tales. It claims to be the real action of yeah. the living God in the real world. That's right. right? And that's conservatives get that right. Yep. The weakness of conservative Bible reading is that they then sometimes take it a step further and want to read all the Bible as literally as possible. Right. And that's not reading the Bible well if you're reading a poem or whatever the heck Genesis 1 through 2 is. Um, whereas for progressives, one of the strengths of progressive Bible reading is they realize that Scripture tells us the truth, but it doesn't tell us the whole truth, and God's not obligated to tell us the literal truth about everything. Right. And so progressives are a little, I think, better disposed to accept Scripture on its own terms. The weakness of progressive Bible reading would be everything can be read so metaphorically <laughs> that it becomes unclear if God ever actually did anything or if just, you know. You mean you mean Goliath isn't my problems? Yeah, well, you know, like 10, ten Jews took a road trip from Egypt down to, you know, Canaan, and that was the Exodus, and nothing ever <laughs> happened. And you're like, well, I I can get behind maybe the Exodus didn't happen exactly like, you know, the text says it did, because we see there couldn't have been that many people, and there would have been documentation. I can get behind that. But if it was just 10 Jews going for a road trip, you know, out of Egypt, there's a point at which we have to ask if there really is a living God who acts in history or if we're just making it up. Right. Yeah. Right. I don't know if I answered your question about inerrancy, and so— in a nutshell, you know, it would be, it, I don't think it functions as a doctrine. Right. Um, and that it tends to be more unhelpful than it is helpful. Like, we should try to the degree that we can to accept Scripture on its own terms. Scripture doesn't claim that it's inerrant. Even people who believe in inerrancy would agree with that, that you kind of have to extrapolate that argument from God breathed. And you can if you want to, but it's not, it's not essential. But back to the, back to the Gospel Coalition post, um, doesn't, and this, you know, and this gets back to how do you doubt faithfully? And so this is a, a really big point because what, what I, cause I can hear it in my head and I've had it, I've had people say it to me. Yeah. But the minute you start opening those doors, yeah, then look yeah. at what else comes in. And so of course yeah. you're actually Simply proving, so. you're actually proving the gospel coalition's point yep. by even opening the door uh, to some of these considerations. Now, yep. Um, and my, and my response, not that anyone's buying a book for that, but 
My response is, well, no, no, no. These are things you hold in tension. These are not slopes you go up or down. Like I hold into tension the fact that there, there are this hyperbolic language used in the ancient Near East when it comes to describing warfare. Okay. Yep. Um, uh, to the taunting language, you know, I mean, it, uh, okay. But I, obviously God was doing something. So, so I don't think it's an either or, but it's certainly presented that way. Absolutely. And, and it's it certainly presented that way in that little quote. So how do you, how do you, and why do you still trust the reliability of the Bible if you don't think inerrancy is a helpful category? Well, let's start with a slippery slope kind of argument. Um, what what we try to talk to our people about uh, at my church is, you know, the the earth is literally an enormous sphere, you know, so there literally is no such thing as there not being a slippery slope, right? And so it's just, you. in other words, we can't teach our people to avoid slippery slopes. We have to teach our people how to walk faithfully on slippery slopes because there is no avoiding slippery slopes. And so, sure, there is a slippery slope, and you do see it happen, point taken. Absolutely. Where people, you know, move so far in the kind of metaphorical <clears throat> reading of Scripture that, again, it becomes unclear if God ever actually did anything, if there is a God, and is there really Jesus, and yada, yada. But again, on the other extreme, I have seen rigid biblical literalism be a slippery slope that leads to an, a complete rejection of the Bible and a broken faith every bit, if not more so, than I've seen the slippery slope go in the other direction. Well said. And so it's just making that's the point right. that, again, there's no such thing as avoiding slippery slopes, and that's why the church has to do the hard work of, of teaching people to be mature, nuanced, disciplined Bible readers. Um, and so that would be the first thing. There's no avoiding the slippery slopes. And that's then the good. second one is to kind of well, why do we trust Scripture? I mean, at a gut level, I trust Scripture because I have encountered the voice of the living God through Scripture. My Come life on. is different because that, not just my life. I look at, again, the, the life of the world as a whole. And you go back and you look at what what has the teachings of Jesus specifically, but fleshed out as a manifestation of Israel's story. What has that done for the world? It's changed the world, man, in ways we can't begin to comprehend. It's changed the world. So I, I trust Scripture because I've seen it work, um, not because it claims to be an inerrant answer book. Mm -hmm. you know? um, mm -hmm. And so in other words, I trust Scripture because it works. It doesn't have to be, quote unquote, inerrant in order to work. A, because we don't have any inerrant Bibles. Right. So again, that's the point I like to come back to. Even if you believe in inerrancy, you have to agree that we don't have any inerrant copies We've, of it. Right. So apparently we're doing okay without inerrancy. And nor are we inerrant readers. Nope. Totally agree. <laughs> Point taken there. Yeah. No, I mean, so so it is. I mean, I, I agree that it's a problematic concept. I just think if if you have to use that word to describe your allegiance to the Bible, I'm out. Mm -hmm. Right? I mean, yep. it's like it's like, no, you have to. I mean, I had somebody confront me once because I didn't say the word sin when I was talking about the gospel. Mm -hmm. And they're like, well, you have to say the word. And it, so, so it, it's it's it is this interesting interesting thing. Um, as you kind of have walked through this, what were some of the things? And and we can end on this. What were some of the things that helped in the midst of the doubts and the considering, you know, walking away? What were mm -hmm. you know? Because you you said something about Job. You said, "Hey, I learned from Job. Yeah, I don't have to be afraid of my doubts." I don't, have to, I don't have to fear them or think I'm doing something disloyal, Yeah, which I thought was powerful. Are there any other things 
that jump out in terms of for people who are in the in the midst of the shadows um what was helpful for you yeah two things i'll mention um the first one was understanding that christian faith has a very long tradition of faithful doubters mm. so this idea that you know our doubts are something that we need to sit with because Jesus wants to use them to create a deeper faith. They're not necessarily an obstacle. They're an opportunity. That's not some sort of you know capitulation to postmodern skepticism. Mm. That has been a part of Christianity from the very, very beginning. And That's so interesting, yeah. I think when we take our doubts and we realize that there's this long tradition in Christianity about how to doubt and how to do so faithfully, then, then we just— or a little more at peace with our doubts. Mm-hmm. We're not as afraid of them. We're not as ashamed of them. Um, and so that creates the space for us to realize we don't have to walk away from the church community in order to process our doubts. And I really think that's key because I think the reason most people walk away is, again, um, they think they can't honestly ask their questions, so they take themselves outside of the church in order to process their questions. Right. And that's the last thing you want to see happen. And so to realize there's a place for you, if you're a skeptic, join the club, man. Um, Jesus, literally, and this goes back to the story of the Great Commission, we're told that the apostles see resurrected Jesus and they worship him, mm-hmm. but they're still uncertain, right? And so if Jesus could literally build the church on 11 doubting worshipers, then you and me can be used by Jesus too in the midst of our doubt. Because mm-hmm. we didn't even get to see resurrected Jesus. So, you know, we got that on him. Um, <laughs> and then the second thing would be, and this was really the thing that kept me in the faith, was I got to this point where I realized there was not going to be any being certain about it. And so given that I could not be certain about this enormous decision that I had to make, you know, because you believe in God, it makes a difference. You don't believe in God, it makes a difference, even though you can't be certain. I got to the place where I just said, you know what? I would rather be wrong about Jesus than I would be right about anything else because Jesus is beautiful. Um, And that's both a pragmatic argument about a life spent being faithful to Jesus is more beautiful than a life spent unfaithful to Jesus. Even if Christianity proves to not be true, it's still how I would choose to live my life. But even more than that, it's an aesthetic argument that just says when the beauty of the gospel reaches out and grabs you, and it just has. It's grabbed me. I've been grabbed by the life of this man named Jesus from Nazareth. It's just really hard to walk away from, man. Like on a deep gut level, it has grabbed your affections and your desires, and you just find it pretty impossible to walk away from it. And so Mm. put yourself in front of the beauty of the gospel, and it will grab you. You won't feel like you have to grab it. Speaking of beauty, one last question that is very important that I ask almost everybody. What's your what's your theology of Coors Light? My theology of Coors Light? Yeah. Two thumbs down. I'm from what? Texas. Okay. What, what's I'm that? What's Texas. Texas have to do with anything? Texas has I thought you real, had taste. Real artisan craft brew oh, great beer mainly shiner right shiner texas is have you ever had shiner I, i'm gonna send you some shiner for christmas i don't even know what your what words you're using <laughs> yeah. right now send me your mailing address and i'll send you some real beer from texas okay first of all of course, no way. okay this is hurtful and i think we'll edit this I hate part that out we're having to end <laughs> on this note <laughs> <laughs> no, but it's I, I. I'm still looking. So I, I did a. We did a podcast called Coors Light's the King of Beers because uh, I just absolutely adore. It. And and the thing I've noticed is that all the people who love craft beers are skinny, 
And all the people that love light beers are not always skinny. And I find the irony <laughs> deeply disturbing. I find that deeply disturbing, my man. I'm gonna find I'm, I'm gonna find somebody, somebody who agrees with me though. I love it. I absolutely I, just, I absolutely man. love it. Well, here's the deal. Like, I don't like I don't like the feeling of a lot of beer sloshing around in my belly. So if I'm gonna drink beer, I want it to be a good thick beer. But you have so such little belly four, to slosh in. Four cores lights. I want to have one or two shiner. But okay. All right, shiner. Don't Here I stand. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, Austin. Luther, all right. So Luther would be with me on this, just so you know. Well, Luther, yeah. Luther would be interesting. Um, so if you're trying to find Austin, his last name is spelled a Fisher, F-I-S-C-H-E-R. Um, and the book is Faith in the Shadows. Oh, I feel like a radio host. I'm like, I'm getting good at this. Faith in the Shadows, finding Christ in the midst of doubt. But no, I, I read it. I dog-eared a bunch. See those, all those dog ears? Yeah. You can't do that uh, on a Kindle. Dog nope. on it. Boo, and uh and uh anyway go go ahead and pick it up if if it sounds relevant at all to you bro thank you for for your time thanks for coming in to your office today showing me outside his window i can see sunshine outside my window i see snow and gray see that right so there? totally mm-hmm. unacceptable totally unacceptable i had a blast mike thank you so much for having me on i really enjoyed the podcast you're doing great work on it man oh thank you my friend all right uh voxers thank you until next time 